Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. In March 1965, during oral arguments in the case of Estelle Griswold versus Connecticut, the case about Connecticut's anti-contraception statute, Justice Hugo Black asked Griswold's attorney, Thomas Emerson, whether his argument about the constitutional right to privacy would invalidate all state laws prohibiting abortion. And this is what Emerson said. No, I, I think it would not. I would not cover the uh, uh, abortion laws uh, or the sterilization laws, Your Honor. Those, uh, those, uh, uh, that conduct does not occur in the privacy of the of the home. In the privacy. Okay. Of, Some privacy is a rule, and the individual doesn't usually want it made known. Well, that Very aspect. Private thing. That aspect of it is is true, Your Honor. But but. Uh, 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 those are offenses which uh, <clears throat> do not involve uh, the type of enforcement apparatus as to what goes on in the home. Uh, that, uh, that part of it goes on in the home, undoubtedly. Uh, uh, part of it does, Your Honor, but the, but the, the conduct that is being prohibited is, uh, uh, in the abortion cases takes place outside of the home normally. There is no violation of the sanctity of the home. In, uh, it's a bit muffled on the recording, but Justice William Brennan then interjected to say, quote, Well, apart from that, Mr. Emerson, I take it abortion involves killing a life in being, doesn't it? Isn't that a rather different problem from contraception? And this is the question and Emerson's response. In a, in a, in well, a, apart from that, Mr. Emerson, <coughs> I take it abortion involves killing a life in being, doesn't it? Yes, rather, of course. Is that a different problem from from uh, contraception. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Then, the, isn't it different in the sense of the state's power to deal with it? Oh, yes, yes, of course. The, the substantive offense is quite different. And so already here in the oral arguments for Griswold versus Connecticut, you see some of the questions that are being asked about the implications of the principle in the case and what exactly that principle is. As the majority opinion describes things in Griswold, there's a constitutional right to marital privacy, that protects the home from the kind of intrusive regulatory apparatus that would be required to enforce laws prohibiting the use of contraception. The source of that right, though, is a bit ambiguous, and the judges disagree with each other about it. On the one hand, the court points to several provisions in the Bill of Rights to suggest that they contain within them a principle of privacy. You can't have unreasonable searches and seizures, for example, and you have to have a warrant before you enter someone's home. Justice Douglas famously said that these specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance. And then he says that the present case concerns a relationship lying within the zone of privacy created by several fundamental constitutional guarantees. And those constitutional guarantees inform how the court understands the substantive liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause. But even with all of that, Douglas nonetheless says that, quote, we deal here with a right to privacy older than the Bill of Rights. And that idea poses some interesting theoretical questions for us. How does this right predate the Bill of Rights? 
Is it one of those unenumerated rights alluded to in the Ninth Amendment, a right that would exist whether or not the Bill of Rights had ever been written? And what are the limits of that right? If there is a right to privacy in the home, how far does that extend? How is it connected to the home itself? If there's a right to privacy in marriage, does that mean there's no right to privacy for people who are unmarried? There were a lot of unanswered questions, and the justices on the Supreme Court were across the board in their interpretations. Justice Goldberg concurred with the judgment that Connecticut's law was unconstitutional, but he wrote separately to emphasize the dystopian implications of allowing the state to regulate conception and family size. If upon showing of a slender basis of rationality, Goldberg wrote, a law outlawing voluntary birth control by married persons is valid, then by the same reasoning, a law requiring compulsory birth control also would seem to be valid. In my view, however, both types of law would unjustifiably intrude upon rights of marital privacy which are constitutionally protected. Justice Brennan also wrote separately to register his complaint that the court tied the right in question too closely to the Bill of Rights and to its penumbras. In my view, he wrote, the proper constitutional inquiry in this case is whether this Connecticut statute infringes the due process clause of the 14th Amendment because the enactment violates basic values implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And he's appealing back here to Palco versus Connecticut, which we discussed a few episodes back. And then in dissent, we had Justices Hugo Black and Potter Stewart. Neither of them defended the law from a policy perspective, but neither could get on board with the decision as a matter of constitutional law. Justice Black, as you might remember, was both a textualist and an advocate of total incorporation. His position was that we should stick closely to the text of the Bill of Rights and totally incorporate the Bill of Rights into how we read the restrictions on the states in the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. From that perspective, he just didn't think there was a constitutional right to privacy, and he compared the decision to the long-rejected and now derided case of Lochner versus New York. I like my privacy as well as the next one, he wrote, but I'm nevertheless compelled to admit that government has a right to invade it unless prohibited by some specific constitutional provision. And Potter Stewart, for his part, wrote this in dissent. Since 1879, Connecticut has had on its books a law which forbids the use of contraceptives by anyone. I think this is an uncommonly silly law. As a practical matter, the law is obviously unenforceable, except in the oblique context of the present case. As a philosophical matter, I believe the use of contraceptives and the relationship of marriage should be left to the personal and private choice, based upon each individual's moral, ethical, and religious beliefs. As a matter of social policy, I think professional counsel about methods of birth control should be available to all so that each individual's choice can be meaningfully made. But we're not asked in this case to say whether we think this law is unwise or even asinine. We're asked to hold that it violates the United States Constitution, and that I cannot do, he concludes. And so this is the tangled web of opinion about constitutional interpretation that existed when the case of Roe v. Wade came to the Supreme Court in the early 1970s. The background of the case is this. A young, divorced, and abandoned woman in Texas named Norma McCorvey was pregnant for the third time. She asked her doctor simply to make her not pregnant. The doctor let her know that abortion was illegal in Texas except when necessary to save the physical life of the pregnant mother facing complications in pregnancy, and admittedly, that wasn't the situation here. She was then connected with some attorneys who were looking for a plaintiff to challenge the constitutionality of Texas's restrictive abortion statute. They filed this case under the pseudonym Jane Roe against the Dallas District Attorney Henry Wade. The case went up to the Supreme Court and was slated for oral argument in 1971. 
Then in the interim, after those oral arguments, Richard Nixon had appointed a couple of new justices to the court. Justices Rehnquist and Powell had replaced Justices Black and Harlan, and the court pushed the case over to the next term and re-argued the case in 1972. What all of this meant is that by the time the case was decided by the Supreme Court, Norma McCorvey had already long ago given birth and given her baby up for adoption in Texas. But the court took the case as an opportunity to decide this hugely controversial question. Does the constitutional right to privacy invalidate state abortion regulations? McCorvey and her attorneys argued that it did, that all state regulations that prevent a woman from terminating a pregnancy at any time or for any reason are unconstitutional. The state of Texas, on the other hand, argued that life begins at conception, that the state has a compelling interest in protecting that life through the law and that its restrictive abortion statute should stand. The Supreme Court then tried to chart a middle path between these two positions, and almost no one today likes the specific answer the Supreme Court gave in Roe. In a 2007 book titled What Roe v. Wade Should Have Said, a bunch of law professors all rewrote the opinion in the way they think it should have been written. And the one thing they agreed on was that the court should have said something else and framed the issue differently. What the court did say was this. The 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause protects a right to privacy that is broad enough, as the court says, to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. On the other side of this is the question posed by Brennan in 1965 in the oral arguments in Griswold about whether abortion is different than contraception in that it involves taking a life in being, as he says, whether that changes the constitutional analysis. But to this, the court said simply in Roe that we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins, even as the court then acknowledged the state's interest in protecting what it called the potentiality of human life. How do we sort all of this out? Well, the court says that these interests, the woman's right to determine whether to end a pregnancy on the one hand and the state's interest in protecting what it calls the potentiality of human life, have to be balanced against each other. And the guiding framework they give is based on the trimesters of pregnancy. In the first trimester, the court says, the decision must be left up to a woman and to her doctor. In the second trimester, the state may enact regulations to protect maternal health. And then in the third and final trimester, the state may prescribe abortion except when necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. As you know, that decision did not end debate about abortion policy in the United States. No one is seriously advocating for a recriminalization of contraception, but opposition to abortion has been a significant source of political and legal mobilization since 1973. The case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 is the closest the court has come yet to reversing Roe. That case involved abortion regulations passed by the state of Pennsylvania. These included a 24-hour waiting period, required a woman to give informed consent after being presented with specific information, and required parental consent for minors and spousal consent for married women. The question in the case was whether the framework in Roe allowed those kinds of state regulations. The answer the Supreme Court gave was yes, for the most part. The only regulation the court said was unconstitutional was the requirement of spousal consent. So far as it goes, it was a victory then for the state of Pennsylvania and for its anti-abortion regulations. But three Republican appointees to the Supreme Court, Justices O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, wrote a plurality decision in the case that reaffirmed what they said was the central holding in Roe while discarding the trimester framework and replacing it with what they called the undue burden standard. Listen here to an excerpt from Justice Sandra Day O'Connor and Justice Anthony Kennedy's opinion announcement in that case. And we conclude that the central holding of Roe should be reaffirmed. 
Some of us as individuals find abortion offensive to our most basic principles of morality, but that can't control our decision. Our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not to mandate our own moral code. After considering the constitutional questions decided in Roe, the principles underlying the institutional integrity of this court and the rule of stare decisis, we reaffirm the constitutionally protected liberty of the woman to decide to have an abortion before the fetus attains viability and to obtain it without undue interference from the state. We also reaffirm the state's power to restrict abortion after fetal viability if exceptions are made where the woman's life or health is in danger. We also hold the state has legitimate interests from the outset of pregnancy in protecting the health of the mother and the life of the fetus that may become a child, and that the state may further these interests so long as it does not unduly burden the woman's right to choose. Applying our analysis to the Pennsylvania statutes challenged here, we uphold, with some exceptions, four of the five challenged provisions. We find that the definition of medical emergency, the requirement of informed consent, the requirement of parental consent, and the record-keeping and reporting requirements do not impose undue burdens on a woman's right to choose whether she will terminate her pregnancy before viability. We conclude, however, that the husband notification requirement unduly burdens this right and is for that reason unconstitutional. The, the essential holding of Roe versus Wade, the holding that we today retain and reaffirm, has three parts. First is a recognition of the right of the woman to choose to have an abortion before viability and to obtain it without undue interference by the state. Before viability, the state's interests are not so strong to support a prohibition of abortion or the imposition of a substantial obstacle to the woman's effective right to elect that procedure. Second is a confirmation of the state's power to restrict abortion after fetal viability if the law contains exceptions for pregnancies which endanger a woman's life or health. And third is the principle that the state has legitimate interest from the outset of pregnancy in protecting the health of the woman and the life of the fetus that may become a child. These principles do not contradict each other, and we adhere to each. In brief, that basic regulatory framework now is that a state may impose regulations on abortion so long as they don't impose an undue burden on a woman's ability to access abortion. And that's where the debate in American constitutional politics has been since 1992. Not about trimesters, but about state regulation and undue burdens on liberty, and about what that liberty entails, how we should understand it and what other implications there might be for this new direction in substantive due process jurisprudence.